You could be seated. Uh, thank you, uh, Moises and the worship team. You guys know how to get a guy ready to preach, so uh, let's jump right in. Uh, I joked a few weeks ago that we're going through the prophets partly so that if you run into Obadiah at the Heavenly Grounds coffee shop in glory, that as he asks you, how'd you like my book, you'll be able to give him an answer. Um, thanks to Rodney, we uh, don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, he gave us a, a great message on Obadiah last week, and this week we reach the book of Jonah. We don't have that problem with Jonah. I suspect most of us, if we spotted Jonah in glory, most of us would know at least the, the basics uh, of his story and of his book, whether it's because we saw the felt whale swallowing a little felt Jonah on the Sunday school board, or whether we had the pirates who don't do anything tell us the story via Veggie Tales. Most of us know the rubric of the book of Jonah, and Jonah is it's just an astounding narrative, and it's just as timely uh, this week as the previous four some odd weeks have been as we have gone through the minor prophets and heard what they have to say, not just to the people of Israel, but also to us as the church today. Uh, if you don't believe me that Jonah is timely, um, I'll read for you a quote from one commentator I read who wrote this in 1985, over 35 years ago. He said, In a day when prejudice and hate inflame men's emotions and pervert their judgment, Jonah speaks with compelling force about limiting our love and sympathies only to some of our fellow human beings and excluding others from our pity and compassion. See, those of us who encountered Jonah as kids might be surprised that the climax of the book, actually the the big action point, the highlight, is actually after Jonah gets spit out on the beach at Nineveh. That's when the book actually begins, or at least the message of the book really comes to um, a height. And this is where we'll spend a a large point of our time after chapter 2 and after Jonah is spit out of the well. But in order to get there, we have to know how we got there. So look with me at Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So a couple of things here. First of all, Nineveh was the largest city in the Assyrian Empire At the time, Assyria was infamous as the world superpower and also virtually a terrorist state. They were known for their their violence and their um, their destruction. Uh, So Jonah's not just, we get a a signal here with Nineveh and Assyria, Jonah's not just a country boy who's scared to go to the big city, okay? There's more going on here. Assyria is, is known for their ruthlessness. As a matter of fact, um, there's a, they, they were known for drawing and quartering their captives, so taking off a couple of limbs and then dragging them through the city to parade them for their, uh, for their city to show their victory. Um, so you did not want to be captured by the Assyrians. They were the world's superpower at the time. They were Israel's public enemy, number one. Um, and they were also, as I said, known for their violence and cruelty. So you can think of the magnitude of, of China, right, just the pure breadth, and then the, um, the violence and brutality of ISIS all wrapped into one nation. Um, and that's who Assyria is. That's where Jonah is commanded to go. And indeed, the man for this task is Jonah of Amittai. So Jonah, unlike his contemporaries, Hosea and, and Amos, was not particularly known for criticizing his king or even his nation, uh, for being particularly prophetic to his people. Th- Jonah is most, fa- most famous so far for, um, in 2 Kings 14, 25, um, for essentially supporting the king's act of his, his aggressive military policy of expanding the borders of Israel. So in 2 Kings 14, 25, we get Jonah's name, and basically you get Jonah's endorsement of Israel's borders going out. 
Um, so what we see here is that Jonah is essentially a king's prophet, right? He's a member of the king's court. And while Hosea and Amos have criticized their, their king and, and called him to repentance, Jonah hasn't gotten there yet as far as we can tell through the biblical record. This is enough to make one commentator reflect that the original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as an intensely partisan, highly patriotic nationalist. And this, this is who God selects to go to Nineveh, who God selects to go directly into the heart of enemy territory. And so we're going to see today two flights, okay, two, two times when Jonah is fleeing, when he's running away from God. One of these flights is going to be Jonah's flight from obedience. So that's chapter 1 and 2, where Jonah's just fleeing obedience. He doesn't want to do what God tells him to do. The second flight that's not so famous is Jonah's flight from love, where he's, he's fleeing love. And we'll see that in chapters 3 and 4. So look with me here at part 1. If we want to think of Jonah in two parts, there's a nice little intermission. We won't take it today, sorry. Um, but there's a nice little intermission uh, right after chapter 2, right before we get to chapter 3. So part 1, Jonah flees obedience. You see, as Jonah sees his nation's interest and his obedience to the Lord diverging, he makes the wrong choice. Look at verse 3. Jonah's answer to God's command is, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is, as most of you know, in the opposite direction of Nineveh, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So like Jesus looking at the rich man and seeing his heart, God looks at Jonah, sees his heart, he knows where his, his idols and loves lie, and he's, he, loves too, he loves Jonah too much to leave him there. He says, we need to untangle this. So he says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah fails his first test. You see, Jonah's problem here is not merely that he sees the Assyrians wrongly, which he, he does, right? Jonah's problem here is not just that he fails to obey God in the mission he's given him, which he does. Jonah's problem here is that his view of God is inadequate. His view of God is, is truncated or, or spliced off. Right? He, he's fashioned a God in his own image. He's fashioned a God of his own comfort and his own power. And he wants to follow that God. That God who wouldn't ask him to do something like this. That God who would never ask him to diverge these interests in his own eyes. You see, Jonah thinks he's following the Lord, but he's following his idol. And when he's confronted with this truth, when the Lord says, okay, you don't really know who I am yet. I'm going to raise the bar. What does Jonah do? Does he say, it's time for some repentance? No. He turns tail and runs. And running from God can take many forms, can it? We can run from God like the prodigal son who, in lavish disobedience and blatant idolatry, lives it up in the far country, taking his father's money and spending it on things that he never should have spent it on. Or, or we can run from God like Jonah, where we just kind of duck the command, right? We go the other direction. We choose to prioritize other things like nationality, ethnicity, whatever it is, over our own discipleship and obedience, and instead, we're drifting further and further away from the Lord. You see, it might be in our rebellion or it might be in our religion, but our sin is always rooted there. It's always rooted in telling God, you know what, you don't know what's best. Yeah, you've said that, but that couldn't have been what you meant. So I'm going to do this. So instead of finding our true comfort and affection in the Lord, we run to sex or security or a dozen other false gods, hoping to find it there. We do this, don't we? This is how our hearts are corrupted by sin. But like the prodigal son, Jonah's running from God does not go well. 
The Lord loves Jonah far too much to allow that. And he loves us far too much to allow that. I know this firsthand. As I read chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break, break up. I think of my own story, right, where I was baptized before the age of 10. I, basically grew, I was basically born in the church nursery. Um, I, uh, I knew every Bible drill verse. I had every medal hanging on my wall that you could get, right? I was uh, star Bible student number one. And yet, by the time I got 14, I looked around and I said, you know what, this is, this is fine, but... Jesus, you can take a seat and, and take a break from the lordship thing for a while. I think I'm going to try it out myself. I can take the wheel. Um, and so I said, I'm, I'm not going to do anything too crazy. Right? I'm not going to ruin my life. I'm not going to do what the prodigal son did. But I'm also not really going to listen to Jesus. I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what I want to do. And by the time I was 17, I was miserable. Right? So I had everything a 17-year-old is supposed to want. Right? I was captain of the football team. I was prom king. I had dating the prettiest girl in school. Still got that one. Um, but so outside, right, there was a, the, the day was bright and cloudless. It was beautiful. From the outside, the world would have looked at my life and said, he's got a, he's got a good thing ahead of him, right? But inside, I was miserable. More nights than not, I would cry myself to sleep out of loneliness and despair and anxiety. I was caught up in addiction to Internet pornography, and even though on the outside my life looked like a clear day, on the inside the storm clouds had settled in. And the waves were starting to splash over the boat, right? I hadn't sunk quite yet, but it was coming. The storm was there. I was bound and determined to get to Tarshish, but the Lord was bound and determined not to let me go. Perhaps this morning you've been running, and maybe you're even halfway to Tarshish. You're fighting storms along the way. You're bound and determined, I'm going to get there. And as the storms begin to roll in on your life, you're wondering, I don't know if I'm going to make it to Tarshish or not, but I sure couldn't turn around. Told God no way too many times for that. The storms won't go away. My friend, this morning you can cry out to Jesus who was also on a boat with some sailors as a storm rolled in and who was also asleep on the boat. And yet as they awoke him, he did not shrug his shoulders. He did not say, I don't know what to do. He uttered the simple phrase, peace be still, and the storm stopped. My friend, Jesus can rescue you out of your storm. If you will cry out to him, ask him for help, trust him, follow him, believe him. I'm not saying all your problems will go away, but what I am saying is that you will change your destination. Jesus can say to your life, peace be still. Don't flee him in fear that he will not welcome you home. Cry out to Jesus. Jonah, meanwhile, is asleep in the hole. And the pagan fishermen, they try to save him. You see this in verse 5? It's, it's ironic, right? The, the prophet of God from Israel is asleep, and the pagan fishermen are virtuously trying to save him. They hurled cargo, verse 5 tells us, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. So the fishermen are trying to save Jonah's life rather than vice versa. And some would say, right, well, what Jonah needs to be doing is, is preaching the gospel to these sailors. What's he doing asleep on the ship? He needs to be preaching the gospel. And others would say, what Jonah needs to be doing is lightening the cargo on the ship and helping them. He needs to be tending to their practical needs. Others might say, well, Jonah at least needs to be awake and praying for them. He needs to be doing something. And the truth is, of course, Christians are called to do all three of those. Right? 
Jonah was responsible to do all three of those. He should have been preaching the gospel to these pagan sailors. He should have been on the deck tending to their practical needs, trying to help them in the storm. He should have been interceding for them in prayer. And yet Jonah is not doing any of those. Instead, he's fled to the hull of the ship. Jacques Alol is remarkably convicting here. He says, while the storm was raging, Jonah, who represents the church, was asleep deep within the hold of the ship. How many of God's people are asleep today? How many are impervious while the tempest rages? My friends, God cares how we treat those who are ethnically and religiously different from us. And going into the hull of the ship only brings a storm. In the midst of the pandemic and these protests, I've heard from many of my friends, and I've even said myself, man, I wish everything could just get back to normal. I can't wait until we can just get, have a normal life again. But brothers and sisters, what if God is not waiting on normal? What if in his providence he's given us this abnormal? Not so that we can recede into the dry and warm hole and fall asleep contented, but so that we can show the nations the goodness of of our Lord, laying down our lives on behalf of others, fearlessness in the face of death, justice and mercy colliding, these things are our inheritance. Will the world detect in us a fear of losing a comfortable life amidst all of this chaos, or will they detect in us, will they get a whiff of the aroma of Christ? For his part, Jonah's already failed once in fleeing, and he fails a second time. The sailors ask for his help. They ask him, what can we do? And rather than repent of his own sin, or rather than giving them instructions, you know what? What we should do, we should turn around and go the other way, because I'm pretty sure the storm came because I went this way and God told me to go that way. He does neither of those. He doesn't say, hold on, let me pray. Let me ask God what we should do. Instead, Jonah decides that he would rather die than obey the Lord and go to Nineveh. Faced with that choice, he chooses death. And so into the water, Jonah goes. But what a patient and what a kind God Jonah serves. You can see God's sovereign care all over these events. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. As Jonah is thrown into the ocean, awaiting his death, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see, God accomplishes his work in spite of Jonah. Jonah wants no part of it, and yet God in his sovereignty continues his work. You actually see in these verses that the sailors repent. Jonah didn't even preach to them, and yet God welcomes them in. And they actually have sacrifices on the ship to this new God after the storm is, is done in response to the storm going away, in response to God's sovereignty. God accomplishes his work in these sailors. And God appoints a fish to save Jonah. I'm, I'm not sure what it's like in the belly of a prehistoric fish, but my guess is it's not a stay at the Gaylord Texan, right? Um, this is not a comfortable place. This is not the hull of the ship that Jonah was asleep in a few hours before. You see, at his lowest, Jonah is brought. He's brought to his lowest, both phys- physically, right? Literally under the ocean, lower than any of us can get, and spiritually. He's brought to his lowest point. And in his despair, Jonah begins to repent. His heart begins to be broken. As the Lord withdraws this comfort, right? As the Lord withdraws what he knew to be true and right, repentance begins to take place in the life of Jonah. You see it in verse 3. He's talking to God. You cast me into the deep in the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. 
You brought me out of the pit, Jonah says. In verse 8, he brings to his conclusion, I'm sorry, verse 9, what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's finally brought to a point where he says, look, salvation is not mine to give. I don't decide who's worthy of being a part of the people of God and who's not. I don't decide what God is going to do and what he won't do. I don't decide what's just and what's not. That's up to the Lord. So Jonah's self-righteous superiority is being uncovered. And this is exactly what Jesus told us would happen. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, as we're brought to the end of ourselves, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's taken a storm and a giant fish, but Jonah is finally beginning to see and to repent. And this is exactly how God works, isn't it? So uh, just be transparent here. I, a few uh, if you would have asked me five, six years ago, are you a patient man? I would have said, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but if you look at the fruits of the Spirit, I could use more joy. I could use more you know, peace. I could definitely be more kind. I could use a generous dose of self-control, but patience, I think I can check that box off, right? And then the Lord, in his goodness and um, providence, gave me three young children. And now I'm like a walking sitcom dad, right? Like, we're not air conditioning the outside, right? Stop licking that. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? I, just, I catch myself going off on these, you know, whoa. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a, a pretty composed guy. You know, I've got a decent poker face. I, I tend to, uh, if I'm going to go somewhere, I don't usually go outward. I usually go inward, just my personality, right? So, I, yeah, I'm a patient guy. I can handle a lot. And yet, the Lord knew it was underneath those stones, and as he gave me those kids, the Lord began to kick open those stones, right? And what's underneath gets exposed. You see, what happened was not that the kids brought my impatience, right? It's not what happened. It's not that I was a patient guy and then the kids made me impatient. No. My kids are beautiful and glorious. They're just kids, right? What happened was that impatience that was there, that lack of the fruit of the Spirit that was, that was not there, hadn't been exposed yet because it hadn't been tested, And as my cup began to get elbowed a little bit, what spilled out was not patience. What spilled out was was impatience. You see, I never repented for impatience before, not because that sin wasn't there, but because it wasn't exposed. And with Jonah's sin exposed, and as he's covered in fish vomit, he goes to preach his sermon, and it is truly a masterful work of homiletics. Chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going, to get, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I don't know if that's all Jonah said, but that's all he wrote down for us. You see, Jonah still, despite the beginnings of repentance, despite being brought to his lowest and seeing himself, as he gets on the shore and feels the warmth of the sun again, as he bathes himself in the sea and goes to preach, walks a day's journey, his heart begins to calcify again, doesn't it? And so he preaches this very mediocre sermon. But if you look at the Lord's power in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. These Assyrians, right? These people who are known for their violence and bloodshed, these people who are pagans in every sense of the word, they get this poor sermon. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to them to the least to them. The king himself repents of his sin. My friend, 
Look at the Lord's power here. You need not fear going to your neighbor or the nations. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't have the answer to their question? What if I don't know what to say? Well, you can't do any worse than Jonah. Fire's going to come down from heaven. Good luck, right? If you do better than that, the Lord's power can work through us. It is not Jonah's words. It's not our words. The Lord in his sovereignty uses this poor sermon from Jonah again, just like he used Jonah's mere presence among the sailors to draw the nations to himself. Imagine what the Lord can do through your feeble efforts. So he's fled obedience, and now he's come full circle, and he's been obedient. He did what God told him to do. He preached the gospel somewhat. He preached. He's fled obedience, and now he's obedient. And now that story beginning, the people of Nineveh repent. The lesson is, right, don't be scared of other people. Watch out for big fish when you're in the ocean, whatever. This seems like the place it should end. This is the place where the, the tale would naturally end. And yet we've got two more chapters here of stuff going on. And not only that, but we get the same narrative, at least the, the bare bones of it, rehearsed again. You heard Moy read it earlier. We have one time where Jonah flees God. We're going to have another time where Jonah flees God. This time he's not fleeing obedience. He's been there, done that. This time he's fleeing love. You see, Jonah's repentance and the belly of the fish was step one, but Jonah still has sanctification left. Sanctification is a fancy Christian word for growth. Jonah still has sin to kill and righteousness to put on. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says, have you ever heard somebody say, well, I repented 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. It's done and dusted. No, it's not done and dusted for Jesus. It's the whole of the Christian life. This transformation, this newness, this difference that is the Christian life takes place only when we find ourselves bowing down to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so I've been a part of a lot of mission training. I've even led a couple, and I've never encountered the method, get them converted and run to the hills. Still waiting on that one. And that's exactly what Jonah does. Right? They start repenting. They say, okay, we're ready. What do we do next? Where's the guy who was talking? And he's up in the hills. He's retreated. You see, Jonah's next move ought to be to disciple them, to introduce them to this Yahweh that he's at least mentioned before. It should be to instruct them in the new way of life, the way of flourishing that obedience to the law will bring. It should be to share with them the covenant love that God has shown to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And instead, he says, all right, I did what I needed to do. I'm out. And he runs. As a matter of fact, we get the word in chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He went out of the city. He fled out of the city. Jonah is going to see if just maybe there's still some lightning and thunder and fire from the sky left in God. Yeah, they repented, but maybe tomorrow they'll forget and I'll still get the judgment that I was hoping for. You can hear that in the back of Jonah's head as he flees. You see, this, what's just happened, is not Jonah's notion of what God should be about. This is not what God's covenant love to his people is supposed to look like. God's supposed to look out for Israel. God's supposed to be with Israel in battle. God's supposed to take out the nations and elevate Israel. That is what God is supposed to do. That's what he promised to do. And yet here, 100,000 Ninevites repenting rather than being judged, that looks nothing like what Jonah's expecting God to be. And he actually says he didn't actually go because he was scared of the mean Assyrians. He says in verse 2, 
Lord, this is, not what I, this, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah says, I knew this would happen. I knew you'd be merciful to him. That's why I didn't want to go. It wasn't because I was scared of him. It was because I knew you'd do this. You're, I know your power. I've seen you do it before. I knew if I preached the gospel, they would repent. I didn't want that. Jonah hungers only for a justice that would affirm him and smite others. He wanted God to make Israel great again, but 100,000 Ninevites repenting does not fit that narrative. In fact, it seems to run in its face. And so in chapter 4, we get Jonah's discipleship exposed. It's at stake. Jonah's love for his God, his in-tuneness with God's plan, is at stake in chapter 4. And so he and God are going to begin this conversation. And as he does, chapter 4 reveals through Jonah two impediments to our own sanctification. So let's look at them together. First, Jonah has made an idol out of his comfort. Jonah has made an idol out of his comfort. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. The Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. You can hear Jonah as the plant grows up. Finally, something's going my way. I can kick back in the shade, and yet, do you hear the irony in those words? So God has just used Jonah's sermon to save the Ninevites from physical and eternal judgment, and Jonah is angry. Now God uses a plant to save Jonah from a sunburn, and Jonah's exceedingly joyful. Verse 6 puts it plain for those of us who are slow readers. The Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him, to deliver him, from his discomfort. Jonah has placed his comfort over the glory of God and the good of his neighbor. That led him to flee to Tarshish, that led him to sleep on the boat while the sailors fought the storm. God removing his comfort led him to repentance inside of the fish and now on full display in this interesting narrative with the tree, the leafy branch, his joy is directly tied to the state of this plant. His very life is tied now to the state of this plant. This is a vivid picture of Jonah's attitude so far. Idolatry makes us silly, doesn't it? It makes us crazy. I mean, most of us have seen this in a family member or a friend, right, where they just become incredibly myopic in their pursuit of a career or a perfect family or a certain political campaign. It just narrows their vision. We see it and we're like, man, they didn't used to act like that. What, What are they doing? How do they not see all the damage this is causing? And we wonder, what in the world's happening to them? And yet, like Jonah, we see it in them and we totally miss it in our own blinders as idolatry twists our hearts and our desires and our affections up with it so that we end up crying when a plant dies while 100,000 people have just been saved from judgment. 
You see, God is summoning Jonah. He's asking Jonah questions so that Jonah can see himself in the Ninevites. He can see himself as one who needed grace and mercy and repentance. And God's inviting us, as we read Jonah, to see ourselves in Jonah. Brothers and sisters, you are Jonah. I am Jonah. Those of us who are religious might obey in practice, but in our hearts we are defiant when God calls us to love our enemies more than our comfort. You see, Jonah's not a sinner for being patriotic or enjoying a nice time in the shade. That doesn't make Jonah a sinner. But Tim Keller helpfully reminds us that in Jonah, we see rightful ethnic pride can become racism. Rightful national pride can become imperialism. And enjoying a comfortable and stable way of life can become idolatry. And so the picture here is is not a pretty one, right? Jonah is currently whining about the lack of shade at his specific spot on the bleachers as he cheers for an entire city to be damned. That's where Jonah's idolatry has brought him. He's submitted to God. He's done what he's supposed to do, but he isn't conformed with God's heart. But boy, what good news that is, that this is not the heart of God. God's heart is not Jonah's heart. God's priorities are not Jonah's priorities. As a matter of fact, Jesus would encounter people not all that dissimilar from Jonah in his ministry. He encountered people who were highly religious, who were self-righteously proud of their heritage, who were looking for a savior to free them from their political enemies and return them to their old way of life and power on the world stage. They are often called in the Gospels the Pharisees. And Jesus would continue, like God would with Jonah, to usurp their expectations and to point them to what he was doing, not just in their own nation, not just in their own community, but around the world and among the nations. And Jesus would continue to give them sign after sign. They would say, hey, Jesus, could you prove you are who you say you are? I know you say you're the Messiah, but not buying it. She would say, sure, yeah, 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 absolutely. Blind man, sight, bam. Yeah, that's, that's a neat trick. Um, could you do something else? Sure, yeah, water, wine, bam. Oh, cool, okay, um, hmm. Yeah, still not buying it. And then, okay, yeah, give me another sign then. Uh, here's some bread, some fish, and bam, crowd filled. Mm, okay, could you give us something else? And finally, by Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, you know what? No. You've got all the signs you're going to get. The next sign and the last sign you're going to get to prove I am who I say I am, Jesus fascinatingly points them to the sign of Jonah. He identifies his story directly with the story of Jonah. You see, it's true that we are Jonah, but it's also true that Jesus is Jonah. Not in his whining, complaining, and disobedience, of course, but in his fulfillment, his completion of Jonah's mission. Jesus did what Jonah would not do. Philippians 2 makes this clear. Jesus did not plead his rights or his liberties. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he made himself Nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And after that, he invites the very people who crucified and defied him to join him at his table and eat his food. Truly, my friend, something greater than Jonah is here. You will only lose your life by chasing after comfort and power. Join Jesus in dying to yourself. Surrender and obedience is a start, but change comes when our heart is melted at the feet of Jesus. When our heart finally submits and is overcome with affection for the one who went not only preaching good news to his enemies, but actually became that good news. Jesus went into the belly of death for three days. And he emerged victorious over death in order to rescue his pagan enemies. 
Jonah's sanctification had not yet seen the heart of God. He had idolized his comfort, but he had also presumed upon his own righteousness. So quickly, in, uh, you see in Jonah's quoting of God, Scripture back to him. I don't know if you caught that. Um, it's the only place I know of in Scripture that someone tries to quote Scripture back to God other than the literal serpent doing it in the wilderness temptation. So he quotes Exodus 34 back to God in the verse I read earlier. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were gracious and merciful, uh, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So hold up. The guy who literally told God no ran the other way, threw himself over the boat in order not to obey God, and then was rescued by a fish and brought to the place of obedience that God had ordained for him, is now mad at God's mercy? He's upset with God for being too merciful? Because Jonah assumes his status as an Israelite means he is worthy of God's mercy. He he would never say it, but his view of God's compassion is that he deserved it and they didn't. His being chosen has not made him humble. His being chosen has puffed him up into self-righteousness. So he sees his sin and Nineveh's sin as two separate categories. Jonah would not say he's perfect, I don't think. I don't think Jonah would say he is without sin. I think Jonah would say that, I mean, yeah, I mess up, I make mistakes, but they fight directly against the people of God. They maim captives. They're violent and oppressive. They literally go to a different temple to worship. I mean, I, I don't do everything right, but at least I go to the right temple. At least I call him Yahweh. But it was Jonah, remember, who had stood in direct defiance of God while the pagan sailors repented. It was Jonah who mimicked the original sin of Adam and Eve by saying no to God and then running to hide. So God asked him in this eye-popping display of the slowness to anger that Jonah has just whined about, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Are, are you sure? You, you, might, you want to rethink this? Are you sure you want to be angry at my mercy? Just, and so God seeks to be patient. And what does Jonah do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Doesn't even consider it, right? You see, self-righteousness leads us to selective Bible reading. Self-righteousness leads us to selective Bible reading so that we are like Jonah, who quotes Exodus 34, 6, but totally misses verse 7, right? That's not where the sentence ends. Any good Torah reader would keep reading, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression from sin. There's a great little but right there. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children? Jonah says, look, God, I knew you'd do that. You're not just. You're just merciful. That's all you ever do. And like, well, no, actually, the verse, I'm going to be just. But praise God. I apply justice to Jesus on behalf of the Nehemiah. Praise God, I apply justice on behalf of Jesus, on behalf of you. And yet Jonah tries to quote Scripture against God, and he comes to the Bible not seeking to know God better, but to indict God for how he should be acting, what he should be doing in the world. And he totally skips the last part. Brothers and sisters, if the only applications we find in our Bible reading are for our enemies, we are reading our Bible wrong. Tim Keller is again apt here. If we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we are misreading the Bible. I'll tell you, as I studied this passage, I prayed over and over and over again that the Father would keep me from being the type of Christian who reads the Bible only to justify myself, who reads the Bible only to prove that I am right. Jonah came to the Bible expecting it to speak to the Assyrians. Judgment will roll down, but not to him. 
Do you read the Bible for how it will correct those out-of-touch boomers or those social justice warrior millennials? And instead, it's forcing you to rethink your views on sexual ethics or racial injustice or a thousand other ways the Bible speaks truth into our lives. My friends, the Word of God is living and active not just for others, but for us. How is the Bible challenging you this morning? Not how is it challenging your neighbor or the people you see on TV. How is it challenging you? So Jonah concludes his book. And the Lord concludes his conversation with Jonah with this great question, Should I not pity Nineveh in verse 11? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Is it good for you to burn with anger? I imagine God is Jonah's therapist here. right? Boy, you seem to be awfully angry about the plant. Tell me more about that. And Jonah continues to rail in and in and in. And God says, okay, okay. But should I not pity Nineveh? And I love the sarcasm here too. I don't know if you caught it. but So there, I mean, there's 120,000 people made in the image of God. But maybe you could find it in your heart to at least care about the cows. Like, I, mean, I mean, look at all the faces of the children. But if you don't like them, Bertha over here. It seems to be a nice cow. Do you hear God there? Jonah, how silly your idolatry has made you. How evil your idolatry has made you. Jonah's idolatry and self-righteousness has killed his love for God and his love for his enemies. And the question lingers. You see, Jonah is a literary masterpiece because it ends on this cliffhanger. It ends on a question. We don't get Jonah's answer. And the reason is, is because we have to write the answer. We have to write the answer not for Jonah... But for ourselves, the question lingers for us from God. God says, should I not pity those people you see on the news that make you so angry? Should I not pity your neighbor who you continue to refuse to invite over for a gospel conversation? Should I not pity the billions of lost souls around the world who we hold so little concern for? James Montgomery Boyce says Jonah had become a separatist spectator in the arena of God's kingdom. But brothers and sisters... Jesus, as he looked down on the city that would crucify him, not Nineveh, but Jerusalem, had compassion. This prophet would go to his enemies, not because God made him and spit him out on the shore, but willingly out of love. Jesus went outside of the city, not to cheer for his deliverance via their destruction, but to accomplish their deliverance via his destruction. Even as we crucified him, as he was crucified, he looked out on the faces of the crowd and saw your face and my face and the face of a thousand million other sinners. He looked on their faces, and do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. Jesus did not seek the shelter of the comfort of a plant, but like the plant, stood between us in the heat and was withered under the holy wrath of an almighty God. You see, God cared about the Ninevites enough to send Jonah. God cared about you enough to send Jesus. And God cares about the world enough to send you. I agree with those who say that Jonah got it, that he wrote his book as a challenge to those who were rewriting his story. To those who are like him, to ask them the simple question, do you share God's heart? My friends, this morning, are we using our religion as a means to more comfort, leading to anger and bitterness and fear? Or are we beholding and following Jesus in sacrificial love?
as we come to sing to that Jesus, as we come to pray that Jesus, would you just pray with me briefly for hearts to see and ears to hear? Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Jonah. Lord, thank you for providentially working in Jonah's life, for not abandoning him, Lord, for not leaving him as he defied you. And Lord, thank you for not leaving me as I defied you, as I sought to run and flee and be Lord over my own life. I pray the same would be true this morning, that we would continue in the process of repentance, that we would not see repentance as something that is in the past and for those people, but that we would look in the mirror of Jonah and see repentance as needed for ourselves. And Father, as we do, may we not become burdened by guilt and fear and bitterness, but may we be freed by Christ the one who came and died on our behalf, that uh, the sin and bitterness and fear that have driven us has been laid onto Jesus if we would only come to his feet. Melt our hearts, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.